Marine Le Pen, while President Macron's ruling party came up 44 seats short of a majority in the National Assembly, meaning there will be a political paralysis unless Macron can find a coalition partner. Joining us is Philippe Malière, who is a professor of French and European politics at University College London. In 2007, he was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science at the University Libre de Bruxelles, and his main publications are about the French Socialist Party, French politics, and European social democracy. And joining us now is Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast This Is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and the forthcoming book Civil War by Other Means, America long and unfinished fight for democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeremy Suri. Nice to be on with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeremy. And over the weekend, the Texas Republican Party had their convention and they effectively voted against uh, democracy. Here you are with your book coming out soon on the unfinished fight for democracy. Well, they're fighting against democracy in Texas by the look of it. I think the leadership of the Republican Party is fighting against democracy. That doesn't mean that mainstream Republicans are in Texas, but the leadership of the Republican Party is composed uh, largely of uh, white men and women who are recognizing that the state of Texas is no longer a white state. It's no longer a state dominated by the sorts of rural politics and ranch politics, gun-toting politics that they're comfortable with. And so they don't support democracy any longer, the leaders of the Republican Party, because they know they can't win in a democracy in Texas any longer. And this is Donald Trump's GOP. So this uh, means that this is what the Republican base is all about, and uh, it would seem that there's worse to come. Well, yes and no. I think it's probably less Donald Trump's GOP than Ron DeSantis's GOP. I think what Governor DeSantis in Florida is trying to do is position himself as someone who who speaks even better to those values uh, by attacking um, homosexuality and other life choices by individuals, by attacking abortion, by attacking businesses in the way he is attacking Disney. I think that's the politics you're seeing in um, in the Texas Republican Party leadership. And um, it will cause trouble going forward, but I think that leadership is out of touch even with uh, ardent Republicans in the state. Uh, more than 70% of Republicans, including in Texas, believe we should have some limits on gun usage. More than 70% of Republicans, including in Texas, believe the government should not attack uh, businesses in the way that uh, Governor DeSantis is. So so I think the, the leadership of the party doesn't necessarily represent where the party is. Well, th- obviously, the vote against the results of the 2020 elections is very much a Trump vote or a, a vote for Trump. But I guess you could say the uh, some of the other uh, measures that were passed by the Texas Republican Party are definitely um, got DeSantis's fingerprints on them. They voted to advance language in the party platform that described homosexuality as abnormal lifestyle choice and calls on students to learn about the humanity of the preborn child while voting against teaching children critical thinking. And of course, they voted against uh, gun control and booed. Senator John Cornyn, along with other 
10 Republicans uh, who are involved in the bipartisan effort to have gun control. So um, are you suggesting in any way, Jeremy, that uh, Ron DeSantis is actually a more dangerous presidential candidate than Trump himself? if that's possible. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is like the old debates over who was worse, Stalin or Hitler. I mean, <laughs> and neither of these men are Stalin or Hitler. They're different, a different kind of threat. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think in some ways, uh, Donald Trump remains the biggest threat because he continues to deny the reality of the fact that he lost his election and lost badly. And he continues to encourage violence. Um, he, he is directly, we've seen this already with the January 6th, hearings and other evidence he encouraged the violence on january 6th and he continues to encourage violence at every one of his rallies now so he is in some ways the most dangerous on a day-to-day -day basis uh, but i think ron DeSantis is the most likely trump kind of candidate to be running for president and to perhaps have a shot at winning i don't think donald trump will be reelected. His negatives are too high among, you know, 56% of Americans think he should be put in jail. But I think DeSantis is the most threatening if you think this agenda is a threat to democracy, which I do. DeSantis is the next logical leader of the kinds of policy positions that we've seen from the Republican Party leadership in Texas. And again, I'm speaking with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and the forthcoming Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. So we all recall Donald Trump during the 2016 primaries, attacked a fellow Republican, John McCain, for being a war hero. <laughs> Literally yes. attacked him for being a war hero and said he likes his, his heroes who don't get captured. And, of course, this coming from the guy that uh, had, what, six or seven deferments for bone spurs and other mythical infirmities to get out of the Vietnam War. But that's continuing that kind of... A character assassination is continuing, particularly with Tucker Carlson, who has described Republican Representative Dan Crenshaw calling him Eye Patch McCain. Now, the reason he wears an eye patch is that he's a former Navy SEAL who lost his eye in Afghanistan, and yet Tucker Carlson feels free to trash this guy and uh, the attendees at the Republican convention uh, in Texas over the weekend uh, went after Dan Crenshaw and were chanting, Dan Crenshaw is a traitor. He needs to be hung for treason. And I guess his sin was that he attacked Marjorie Taylor Greene for being an idiot. So what other reason is there for going after Dan Crenshaw? Well, I think what we're seeing, and, and this is, as a historian, I have to say, not new, it's just it's more evident now, there have always been a, uh, a small segment of the American public that uh, believes that our society should not be open to progressive change of any kind, and that all that matters is keeping a certain group of people from a certain background in power. 
Um, this was the story of the late 19th century uh, throughout much of our country. It was the story of the 1930s. It was the story of the backlash against civil rights. So um, what we're seeing from those chants against Dan Crenshaw and against John, Senator John Cornyn, uh, you know, these are two very conservative politicians <laughs> who are being accused, as you say, of being traitors because they're looking to compromise or at least call out the idiocy and undemocratic behavior of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. What we're seeing, though, is a kind of identity politics. Uh, these are individuals in the audience. They're a small group, uh, but they're a very vocal and committed group to protecting America only for them. And democracy to them means power for their group. Uh, and, and this is not new. The, the difference between uh, today, uh, Ian, and, and 50 years ago is there's a Fox News and there's an Internet that's circulating these images and infecting our public discourse in what would have otherwise been something that occurred but we didn't see as much of uh, 50 years ago. Well, I guess the other sin of Dan Crenshaw was uh, that late last year in Texas, he said that, quote, there are two types of members of Congress. There's performance artists and legislators. The performance artists are the ones that get all the attention, the ones you think are more conservative because they know how to say slogans real well. They know how to recite the lines that they know our voters want to hear. And then he went on to say, we have grifters in our midst in the conservative movement, lie after lie after lie. And then, of course, he more recently attacked Marjorie Taylor Greene on Twitter because she was she, she and the, and I guess the people at the convention um, over the weekend, I'm not sure of this, but she's been against helping out Ukraine in any way. And That's Mark correct. That's correct. Crenshaw, of course, is a former veteran who takes the opposite position. Is that was that also going on uh, over the weekend? As I understand it, that was that was an issue. It was not the main issue, but I think it all comes back to the same point. And I think you you said this accurately, quoting uh, Crenshaw, that it, it's performance art, but it's performance art that has a seriousness to it. There's a sense that this should be America first only for certain people, and that others are stealing our country from us by supporting Ukraine, by allowing women to make choices with their bodies, by even compromising on these issues. And the act of legislation always involves, especially in a 50-50 Senate, it always involves give and take. And um, extreme thinkers on the Democratic side are objecting to this, too, but they don't object as violently. They don't object in such racist ways. But this has been built into right-wing rhetoric in our country for 200 years. But as, as you said, um, the Internet and Fox News give people a platform, and that's what's really dangerous, that this is then a platform to promote this kind of hate to a broader audience. And even though I think most people reject it, we know that some people listen and get drawn into it. It becomes intoxicating, uh, unfortunately intoxicating sometimes for 18-year-olds who go out and buy guns and then go and shoot a school. I, I think what happened in Buffalo and Uvalde is directly connected to what we're talking about right now. And in terms of the far right of the Republican Party rejecting military aid to Ukraine, while clearly before our eyes we see uh, Russia, or Putin, I should say, because I think there's a huge difference between the Russian people and Putin. And indeed, uh, the more you demonize the Russian people, the more you play into Putin's hands, because him and his former Prime Minister Medvedev are saying that the West hates us. Well, 
the West doesn't doesn't hate Russian people, but it sure hates what Putin is doing, murdering a country before our eyes. And yet you've got these people like Tucker Carlson shilling for the Russians, or for Putin, I should say. And again, uh, Crenshaw apparently, in, in, t- in tweeting out against Marjorie Taylor Greene, said to her, still going after that slot on Russia today, hey? So why are they all in with Putin when, you know, the traditional GOP was uh, the great sort of anti-Soviet uh, Soviet bashing party? At the end of World War II, and especially during the Eisenhower presidency, the Republican Party uh, defined its foreign policy along anti-communist, hard-line actions, often aggressive actions, toward the Soviet Union and other perceived enemies. But in spite of that um, position, within the Republican Party, there were still strong isolationist groups, groups that believed we shouldn't spend our money overseas uh, for fiscally conservative reasons, groups that believed the United States should not support decolonization, should not support groups of people overseas who were non-white, and uh, groups that were skeptical about any anything the United States could do to help other people that didn't help us first. And I think what we're seeing today is not really just an identification with Putin, but a return to an isolationism among many Republicans who, after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, believe that these activities have not benefited their communities, have not benefited their people, and want to hoard our resources for ourselves. They see Vladimir Putin as a convenient uh, ally because what he wants is the United States to disengage from the world as well. And so it's not as if they're supporting Putin per se, but what they are supporting is a disengaged United States which would allow Russia to do more overseas and in their eyes allow the United States to use its resources only for the right Americans at home. Well, just in closing, Jeremy Suri, do you think that the majority of, uh, you mentioned uh, that the majority of Texas Republicans don't go along with this. So could Biden and the Democrats tap into that uh, reservoir of rejection of the of this far-right trend and the Trump takeover of the GOP? Yes and no. I think the challenge is that many of the uh, Republicans, the majority who reject what we saw at this uh, Republican Party convention here in Texas, the majority who reject this also reject the Democrats. They see Democrats as socialists. They, they do buy into that. And as a consequence, as a consequence, uh, it's hard to get them to vote Democrat. But what is possible is to get them not to support certain Republicans. And so I think what uh, Beto O'Rourke running for governor and what Joe Biden are trying to do is convince uh, those who are on the left and in the center to vote Democrat and those who are on the right to at least not vote for these kinds of figures who support this abhorrent, anti-democratic, anti-homosexual, anti-woman uh, set of positions. And and so the idea is to try to drive up the turnout in the center and the left and drive down the turnout on the right. Well, Jeremy Suri, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast This Is Democracy and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and the forthcoming book Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the dissolution of Israel's ruling coalition 
and how Biden will be meeting with Prime Minister Lapid in his upcoming July visit that includes a trip to Saudi Arabia, which is already controversial. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Trita Parsi, who is Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a Professor of Political Science at Georgetown University and the co-founder and former President of the National Iranian American Council. His books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel and the United States and Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy. And he has an article at NBC News, The Real Reason for Biden's Capitulation to the Saudi Crown Prince. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Trita Parsi. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's obviously been pressure from Israel as well as from Saudi Arabia for Biden to sort of jump aboard the Abram Accords. And now we're learning that the Israeli government is just collapsing. The coalition between Naftali Bennett and Lapid is uh, dissolving and I guess when Biden shows up in Israel and Saudi Arabia in July he'll be meeting with uh, Prime Minister Lapid. Is that your understanding? That is my understanding as it stands right now but of course things are quite fluid uh, and it's not entirely clear to me if this is going to create a deeper problem for his planned trip. Uh, but it seems like Lapid is going to be the interim prime minister until the election. So do you accept the notion, though, Trita, that a lot of pressure is coming from not just from Saudi Arabia? Uh, I guess in, in a way Saudi Arabia may be more, a better way to describe it than pressure would be blackmail, right? In other words, you got to you got to agree to our terms before we'll turn on the um, oil spigot. Oh, certainly. Uh, although what I'm arguing in the piece is that while there's been a lot of focus on the idea that Biden is sacrificing his values because there is this necessity politically to push down oil prices and get gas prices down in the country and lower inflation, uh, I'm not so sure that that actually is the driving force behind this. There may be one aspect of it. But Biden's own statements seem to indicate that he knows quite well that the Saudis don't have the ability to really push down prices that much. Their excess capacity is somewhat limited. Demand is getting out of control. So it's not so much of a supply problem as it is uh, an excessive demand problem. I think the deeper issue is that the Biden administration has been planning for some time this uh, enlargement of the Abrams Accord, although I'm sure they're not going to 
use those terms necessarily, but a, a broader realignment in the Middle East in which the prize is to get the Saudis to either recognize Israel or to take a significant step towards normalization with Israel. Uh, and that that will be seen as a, a significant achievement for the Biden administration. It's, of course, going to come with all kinds of arms agreements and things of that nature, and that he's going to use that as a big strategic win. And that's the reason why he's making this trip out to Saudi Arabia. Well, but that's not going to help him particularly, is it, uh, Trida? I mean, I don't think... I personally don't think so. I don't think so, and I I don't think this is not only not necessarily achievable, I don't think even desirable. Because what the Emiratis are saying is, and, you know, there's been talk about this in D.C. for some time now, that the U.S. is considering offering them some form of a security assurance. The Emiratis and the Saudis are asking for written security assurances. They want to have more U.S. troops on their soil as part of that guarantee in order to ensure that it's not something that a future president easily can undo. This is completely contradictory to what Biden himself promised. It's contradictory to what the American public wants. They want an end to these endless wars, and they want to have a significant reduction of troops in the Middle East. They want to have the troops come home from that region. Here, Biden would be increasing the troop levels, increasing America's military obligations in the region for the sake of having Saudi Arabia and Israel normalized relations, which is a concession to Israel. It is not a concession to the United States. There is, of course, another angle to it that I think is more um, central to the Biden administration's thinking, which is that they think that by doing this, they're really tying the United Arab Emirates and the Saudis to the U.S. side in this broader geopolitical contest against China and Russia. But again there, it seems to be built on hopes and dreams than reality. Because the idea that the Saudis truly would turn their backs on the Chinese uh, because of this agreement is quite unlikely. They will probably do some things tactically for the United States, but strategically they're going to keep their options open, just as they have so far. So it seems to me to be a deal in which the U.S. gives more and more and gets less and less. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Trita Pazzi, who's Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and he's the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy, and he has an article at NBC News, The Real Reason for Biden's Capitulation to the Saudi Crown Prince. But in terms of of cutting ties or, or getting the Saudis to cut ties and the Emiratis to cut ties with Russia, they're there together with Putin in OPEC plus and by the way the Emiratis are laundering Russian money for the oligarchs to protect them from sanctions They're, a lot of the super yachts of the Russian oligarchs are parked in the Gulf and you know the only person in the government that's been screaming about this is Tom Malinowski former State Department official basically saying what side are Saudi Arabian Emiratis on here well, and, you know, from their perspective, they're on their own side, and they're keeping their options open. Frankly, but, what but they're why doing are we gonna, is... why are we going to make a security agreement with them then to basically protect them from, I imagine, from Iran, right? Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. I, I think it makes no sense for us to make that type of a security agreement because our ability to convince them to completely side with the U.S. against China and Russia is minimal. 
the Saudis are just going to take this concession from the U.S. and pocket it and not do much in return. I think our ability to truly be able to shift them around is extremely limited for just pure geopolitical reasons. The Saudis and the Emiratis have lost complete confidence in the United States. They don't trust the United States, and as a result, their best option is to keep their options as open as possible. Uh, and a security pact is not going to change that reality. It's just going to be something they pocket without giving the United States the key thing in return that the U.S. is asking for. So, again, this whole arrangement doesn't make much sense. And what is particularly problematic, in my view, is that this is Biden not just continuing what Trump started. He is expanding what Trump started. Trump walked out of the JCPOA, just as the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Israelis wanted. Then he went for the Abrams Accord, in which he essentially said the United States is completely siding with Israel. The Palestinian issue is no longer an issue. We're moving beyond the Palestinian issue. Um, and uh, the United States is going to further its commitments to the security of these different countries. Instead of reversing that and going back into the JCPOA, Biden is actually now moving further along the path that Trump already uh, uh, started uh, traveling on. And it's uh, not making any strategic sense for the United States. We're going to get dragged into more conflicts in the region. We're actually setting up the region to um, uh, for a further conflict because in order for the Abrams Accord to function and be durable. It's not just that the Saudis and the Emiratis and some of these other Arab states would uh, recognize Israel. For that to actually be sustainable, they need to have a continued common threat perception, meaning they need to continue to see Iran as a threat. The document that um, Jared Kushner produced uh, underlying the Abrams Accord actually explicitly states that any reduction of tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia is a threat to the Abrams Accord. So to keep the Abrams Accord alive, we need to have continued enmity between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and some of the other Arab states in Iran. So we're actually doing something that cements conflict in the region rather than resolves it. And ultimately, not only is that bad for the region, but it's also bad for the United States because it's going to drag the U.S. into more conflict in the Middle East. And through the party, you mentioned Jared Kushner, who essentially was a stenographer for Netanyahu. The idea that he had anything really substantive to do with the Abram Accords is a joke. I mean, he basically, you know, was just fronting for Netanyahu, and Israel got everything it wants out of it. The Palestinians basically get hosed. That's the whole point of it. And uh, to move the whole debate away from Israel and Palestine into a clash between Arab states and Iran, and that was that's what they've achieved. But I can't understand Biden again because MBS Mohammed bin Salman just gave Kushner two billion dollars against the advice of his own sovereign wealth fund, and they gave another billion to Mnuchin. And some analysts, and I tend to side with them, are suggesting that this money is a down payment on enormous amounts of Saudi money that were poured into the 2024 elections to bring back, guess who? Donald Trump. I don't think there's any secret whatsoever that the 
Saudis prefer the Republicans to take the House and the Senate in the midterms and to take the presidency in 2024. So whatever Biden is offering Saudis right now, again, they will pocket it and they will not drift off of the path that they're already on, which is to keep their options open with Russia and China and to prefer the Republicans and Trump in particular to come back into power. So, given this doesn't make sense, but it appears to be the trajectory that the Biden administration's on, it makes you wonder. I mean, on the one hand, he's, he sent out letters to the oil companies asking them not to gouge. I mean, he has the ability, Biden, from what I understand, to basically, through executive orders, to get the United States to stop exporting oil. We're the world's biggest producer of oil, even bigger than Saudi Arabia. And we're going along with the global price price and exporting, and the, the oil companies are making a ton of money. But if they stopped exporting, uh, they could definitely lower the price enormously, more more than Saudi Arabia could ever do. So I don't understand. Is this, is this telling us that the oil companies have, and the Israelis, who, by the way, aren't really supporting Ukraine, which is another slap in the face to Biden, are they just more powerful than the White House is? I think what it does say to us is that you have an administration that is very much afraid of creating tensions with very powerful centers uh, in the United States. And as a result, are pursuing a very conventional and very cautious policy at a moment where we need bold thinking and far greater degree of creativity than we have. I mean, there's nothing creative for the Biden administration to continue Trump's Middle East policy. I mean, the very same arguments, for instance, that the Biden administration correctly have used against Trump's maximum pressure strategy against Iran and the sanctions and how counterproductive those sanctions have been. Nevertheless, very soon, the Biden administration is likely going to uh, intensify those very same maximum pressure sanctions as Trump put in place. As you know, Biden never lifted those sanctions. We're still pursuing that policy and we're going to intensify it. So we're seeing a clear pattern now in the Middle East in which there's far more continuity between Trump to Biden than there is between Obama and Biden in the Middle East. So just in closing then, uh, Trita Pasi, I mean, I've been reading articles from foreign policy analysts saying that, you know, we just have to accept real politic here with Saudi Arabia that we can't act according to our ideals but according to our, our interests so I don't I never understand what our interests are with Saudi Arabia given the enormous damage that Wahhabism has done to Islam around the world and radicalized Islam and all of the radical groups all around the world with ISIS and the Taliban and you name it, they all have their roots in Wahhabism and Saudi money. And then, of course, you've got the 9-11 attacks when almost all of the the attackers were Saudis or Emiratis, and uh, there's never been any real reckoning there. And it looks like Biden's going to betray the families again of 9-11. So I just don't understand what this relationship is because it's never really been in our favour, and yet we continue it. And now we're doubling down. So what would the alternative landscape look like to you? 
So let me first start off by saying that that frame that some are using, including folks from the Biden administration, that this is realpolitik and it's just, you know, a strategic necessity. And these are the moments in which uh, a country has to choose between its strategic interest and its values. And it is true. There are plenty of moments in which any country would have to choose between its strategic interest and its values. It cannot always have both. This, however, is not one of those moments because there's no strategic value in what Biden is doing. He is not going to get lower oil prices. He is not going to get Saudi Arabia and the UAE siding with the U.S. against Russia and China. So there is no strategic gain here that then justifies the sacrifice of American value. So this is a lose-lose rather than a trade-off. Uh, and, and that is why it is so perplexing that the administration is going down this path. And as I understand it, there are people in the administration that do oppose this. So it's not set yet. There's still a likelihood that uh, they may choose a better path. Now, what would be a better path? Well, in my view, a better path would have to be something that is fundamentally reorienting our policy in the Middle East. What is so uncreative of what the Biden administration has done so far is that they haven't done any of those big changes. We're still keeping a lot of troops in the region. We are still thinking that we need to have 900 troops in Syria because we're protecting some vital interests there. We have to recognize that the Middle East actually is not that strategically important. And whatever importance it has, it does not necessitate or justify this degree of military presence by the United States, in fact, any degree of military presence. We can safeguard our interests without having permanent military bases in the region. We should be maximizing our diplomatic engagement and being able to have options rather than what we're doing right now. Whenever there's a conflict, we take sides, we eliminate our own ability to play a helpful role to bring those conflicts to an end because we're belligerent in those conflicts rather than uh, an, an impartial mediator. And by taking sides, we're now also in a situation in which we actually have limited, if any, diplomatic contacts with a lot of different players in the region. That reduces our maneuverability and increases our dependence on states such as Saudi Arabia that is so profoundly undermining U.S. interests uh, throughout the world and in the region itself, particularly, as you mentioned, with their spread of Wahhabism and Islamic extremism. So, for instance, if we have a problem with high oil prices, you mentioned several different options that Biden has in terms of stopping exports. But also, if we had just gone back into the JCPOA, we would have Iranian oil back on the market. It would not necessarily be enough to offset the entire crisis, but it would give America options. So it wouldn't have to be so dependent on the Saudis. In fact, the Iranians have 85 million barrels of oil that is just sitting there, 25 million on uh, ships and uh, 60 million in country. They cannot sell it because of U.S. sanctions. If the U.S. goes back into the JCPOA, those sanctions get lifted and that oil reaches the market almost instantaneously. That would significantly push down oil prices. In the short run and in the longer run, once Iranian oil is fully back on the market, it would also help. It wouldn't entirely resolve the issue, but it would increase America's options and it would reduce its dependency on Saudi Arabia. 
We're not choosing those options, however. And this is what's so perplexing. It's perplexing to see that Biden's policy has turned out to be more similar to that of Trump than that of Obama. Well, Dr. Trader Parsi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Trita Parsi, who is Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. And he has an article at NBC News, The Real Reason for Biden's Capitulation to the Saudi Crown Prince. We're going to take every station break. We're back looking into the results of the French parliamentary elections, which saw a tenfold increase in the seats won by the far-right party of Marine Le Pen. How many of us, how many of us, how many jealous, real friends, there's not many of us, we smile at each other, but how many honest, trust issues, switch up the number, I can't be bothered, I cannot blame you, for having an angle, I ain't got no issues, I'm just doing... Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Philippe Malier, who is a professor of French and European politics at University College London. In 2007, he was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. And his main publications are about the French Socialist Party, French politics and European social democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing. Philippe Malier. Hello. So, Philippe, is Macron somewhat paralysed now by the election results in the Assembly, the parliamentary results that just came in, which uh, he doesn't have a, a majority, his party doesn't have a majority, and the socialist and the left came back with a vengeance after losing the last election, or Mélenchon coming in a close third place. But now, the biggest takeaway seems to be that the far-right party under Le Pen, they've increased their majority tenfold. So they have something like close to 90 seats. So what's the biggest takeaway for you, Philippe? Well, uh, I should say that you you summed up the the main outcomes of uh, uh, this election. And I think to start with, I think there are probably three main outcomes. Uh, The first being, as you pointed out, that Emmanuel Macron, French president, will not have an absolute majority in the House. It's the first time since 1988, at the time, François Mitterrand had just been re-elected and he failed to get one. So it's not, it doesn't normally happen in a sense that once, uh, you know, the president get, gets elected or re-elected, the uh, legislative election follows a few weeks later. So normally the, the French voters tend to confirm that vote and want to give the president a majority to pass legislation and govern. So it's really, it sounds like, you know, certainly um, 
the French didn't uh, want to do that exactly. And the reason being that um, Macron has been increasingly unpopular is persona and policies. And he was, to some extent, uh, re-elected by default. You know, he was facing Marine Le Pen, a far-right candidate again, and he managed to get re-elected thanks to the votes of a lot of left-wing voters who didn't want to vote for him in the first place, but had to to stop Le Pen. So that's the first outcome. The second one, or second takeaway, uh, uh, is really um, the fact that the, the left is back, uh, and the left was uh, really in deep crisis um, and until the uh, presidential election a few weeks ago, fragmented, and first Mélenchon, uh, radical left uh, candidate, did well, uh, uh, receiving 22% of the share of the vote, coming very close to the second spot, and failed narrowly to qualify for the second run. It was very close to Le Pen. And in the aftermath of this presidential election, uh, they, the left had, well, the main parties of the left had the good idea of uniting instead of going to that election alone and, you know, splitting the left-wing vote in, you know, fielding several candidates in each constituency. They didn't do that the same error as they did five years ago. And of course, that boosted the, the, the sort of visibility of those candidates, just fielding one candidate per constituency. So they managed to qualify in far more uh, second rounds than five years ago and in turn got more MPs elected. So they're back. But of course, there are lots of unanswered questions regarding the future because that coalition, uh, who is called, it's a funny name, NUPS, it stands for a long acronym, is, uh, of course, first of all, first and foremost, an electoral coalition, you know, uh, gathering together moderate parties on the centre-left, socialists, Greens, communists, and uh, Mélenchon's uh, radical left populist party. So it remains to be seen, you know, whether they can still work together uh, and... We don't know yet. And the third really uh, main point of this election is is the steady rise of the far right, uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, national rally. And I have to say that as a political scientist, and I'm not the only one, I think that probably no one saw it coming in a way, because looking at the latest opinion polls just 48 hours before the vote, the projections in terms of seats were that Le Pen at best would get, Le Pen's party would, would get 40 seats in the National Assembly. Well, in the end, they got almost 90. And that is really, as you said, you know, multiply, multiplying by 10, you know, their number of MPs from 8 to 89. And that shows that we also have to take on board the electoral system in France, which is a, a, a majoritarian, to, to ballot majoritarian system. Normally, it's not good for the far right. The far right would probably benefit more from PR, proportional representation. We used to say that, political scientists used to say that until last night, where, again, uh, Le Pen showed that she could get an impressive number of MPs elected without PR. She could really, you know, win in several parts of France. Not only is historic bastions, the southeast, the north, northeast, but now in the southwest, the Aquitaine, the border region, Dordogne, and also more in more central parts of France. That is really a 
an electorate which is which is getting nationalized and with a very good basis, you know, uh, in v- various parts of France. So that's, in short, if you like, these are the main teachings of, of this legislative election. Not, not a good result at all for Macron. Uh, the left is back, but remains to be seen whether this uh, coalition will last. And I think probably the main victor of uh, this vote is, is the far right in Le Pen. And again, I'm speaking with Philippe Malier, who is a professor of French and European politics at University College London. In 2007, he was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science at the University Libre de Bruxelles, and his main publications are about the French Socialist Party, French politics, and European social democracy. So this this new uh, leftist party um, of Mélenchon's, uh, NUPS, uh, stands for the New Ecological and Social Popular Union. And they got 131 seats, but there were still 22 other leftist parties or leftist candidates who didn't join in Ensemble, which is uh, Macron's party, got 245 seats. So they're, what, 44 short of a working majority. So will they therefore be able to get enough of the Republicans to join? The Republicans, uh, the traditional right-wing party uh, that's shrunk enormously over the years, got 64 seats. So their chairman, Christian Jacobs, said, we campaign in opposition, we are in opposition, and we will stay in opposition. So they seem to be shutting the door on on Macron forming a coalition with them. How, how do you see this working out? Because Macron obviously has to find 44 seats. Yes, I think that's the major difficulty for um, Macron now. He is uh, 44 seats short of an absolute majority, and he needs to, to get them if he wants to, to pass legislation, you know, as his um, party should do in, 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 the, in the House. And his options are very limited. I think his one option is to turn to the right, to turn further to the right, I should say, and try to make either formal alliance with uh, Les Républicains, Republicans, which is uh, President Sarkozy's uh, party, or to, on a, on a kind of ad hoc basis, you know, get some uh, legislation approved thanks to the support of Les Républicains. Well, yes, uh, after the vote, uh, the barons of uh, the Republicans' barons were didn't sound too enthusiastic about that. They said they firmly said we are an opposition party. We're against. Uh, the president's party, and I think probably uh, they are putting, of course, pressure on Macron. It doesn't doesn't mean that in the end they will not occasionally support some of Macron's legislation, because on notably on uh, economic uh, policies and programs of Macron are largely compatible with with uh, the right. But I think, of course, they know that Macron now is weakened. They know that Macron in five years' time will not be able to run again. He will complete his second and last term. So in a sense, uh, you've got a very weakened uh, president, no majority, far from there. And you've got, uh, he's in a sense, between a rock and a hard place. To his left, a very determined and, and united left. To his far right, a growing uh, far right parliamentary group with Le Pen and Let's not forget those Republicans, around 60, down from 100. The Republicans together with the Socialists on the, on the centre-left used to be the two main parties in French politics for 40 years until a few years ago. 
And of course, they are also in decline, but they're still there. And the irony is that Macron will badly need their support to do anything. Otherwise, uh, I think it's a, it's a deadlock, really. So if he is able to win over some of the Republicans, there's 64 seats, and as I mentioned earlier, the party chairman of the Republicans seem to close the door on that, but I think other voices have suggested that they might work with him. I don't imagine he can't find 44 seats anywhere else, can he? There, there are 26 seats of, I guess, smaller parties, and there were the 22 that I mentioned on the left that didn't join in the NUPS uh, coalition. So he's going to have to turn to the right, right? Michael. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's got nowhere else to turn to because let's not forget that uh, Macron's party, uh, La République En Marche, went to this election under an umbrella coalition uh, called Ensemble Together. That's the translation. And so really, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of coalition of three major parties, Macron's party, the party of a former prime minister of Macron, um, uh, and uh, an another centrist party for European Christian Democratic. So really, is he's got nowhere else to go, and to, he's got to turn to uh, the Republican Party, uh, French one, of course. And it's not a foregone conclusion. And I think the the, the stakes are quite high because uh, the, you will have to compromise. And this is something Macron has never done so far. He's not used to it. Uh, he had a large majority five years ago. He could do whatever he wanted to, and he did that. And, you know, it was a, through a very top-down uh, governing style. And his MPs were really extremely uh, disciplined, uh, voted, you know, according to uh, his, his wishes, what he wanted. So now it's going to, it's going to be a complete uh, change of scenery and situation uh, because there's no majority in the House. And also, let's bear in mind that the two other blocs, the far right and the united left, are sending to the parliament lots of new MPs, particularly on the left. They, are, they tend to be young, very politicized, educated, very able um, politicians, despite being very young. You know, they've sort of uh, they've been active at grassroots level for a number of years in various uh, domains, you know, feminism, uh, the environment, anti-racism. That's the kind of MPs that uh, the left is, as, uh, is sending to the National Assembly. So they'll be vocal. They will make the life of the, the government extremely difficult. So really, Macron really needs, needs to raise his game. You know, it, the days of him dominating uh, the uh, French political life are over. And I think he's got to find a solution. So far, he hasn't had a good post-presidential uh, um, campaign. You know, he did not campaign uh, or did campaign very little for this legislative election. The week before the vote, he uh, went away on a trip abroad. He ended up with Zelensky in Kiev. Very surprising uh, timing, you know, because uh, at the time it was the majority was already on, in the balance. You know, uh, polls were showing that he was not guaranteed. But Macron being Macron, he went away, came back, and didn't get a good result. So I think he, he's got really now to 
to compromise, will have to raise his game in the sense that he, the days of him uh, dominating uh, the sort of uh, French political life, including in Parliament, you know, the, the president can't interfere with parliamentary work, but he, it was well known fact that he was able really to uh, virtually uh, impose the kind of bills and and and, and law proposals that he wanted uh, his his own MPs to to pass, and they were they duly obliged. This is over. He's got no majority, and uh, let's see now how astute and skillful the politician he is, because I think it's going to be a very different situation from now on. So, just in the last minute, then, uh, Philippe. The far right increased their numbers of seats in the in the assembly tenfold, which is up to eighty nine seats, and that's quite alarming. It's still not. I mean, we have about thirty to forty percent of Americans now on the far right because uh, Trump controls the GOP. It's his party in Texas. They just had an, the Texas Republican Party just signaled the kind of far right radical policies that the Trump GOP has. So we have a growing right wing in this country, I mean the growing far right wing I should say, which you also have in France. So how is that going to affect Macron's foreign policy? He's been quite active in trying to broker a deal with Putin which has gone nowhere. Then he, as you mentioned he just visited with Zelensky and of course Le Pen and the far right, not only do they take money from Putin, uh, their foreign policy is completely aligned with Putin's as is Hungary's, where they're completely in favour of the slaughter of the Ukrainians, it would seem. Yes, that's that's not a worry for, for Macron. I think he's got, on both sides, left and right and far right, uh, two leaders who are, on the whole, Eurosceptic, and, and uh, for different reasons, of course. Uh, one uh, from a left-wing perspective, the other one from the far right nationalistic and xenophobic one. Um, but uh, if you look at the sort of international relations, notably the, the hot topic of the day, which is the war uh, in Ukraine, it's well known fact that uh, Marine Le Pen was very close to the Putin regime. Uh, she met him in the Kremlin several times. And there's another issue, I don't know if it was talked about, uh, mentioned in US, in US media, but uh, a loan from a Russian bank, which is also close to Putin. So she owes that bank 24 uh, million euros. And the irony is that uh, thanks to uh, sort of uh, 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 electing 89 MPs, uh, there is, uh, you know, public funding uh, coming along uh, to Le Pen's party uh, to the tune of 54 million euros. So it's the irony is that French taxpayers are going to bankroll uh, the sort of a bank uh, which is uh, associated to the Putin regime. And, and that's really, that's an anecdote which shows the sort of uh, uh, the situation we're in in France, because, of course, uh, um, Le Pen, since the start of, uh, Russians, of the Russian invasion, you know, turned down uh, sort of support uh, for Putin. But there are uh, party officials in, uh, in a party which... Uh, who haven't done that, really. You've been listening to a special presentation of Background Briefing on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for WMNF with Harrison. That's coming up after NPR Headlines.